0: Lord, we ask you to be with us this evening uh, as we are going to dive into this vast topic. And Lord, we know there's so much of this topic that we can cover, and it will take so much time. But I pray, Lord, that um, you can be with us as we just go, just dabble on it, um, on, this, on this topic of the Trinity, uh, that we have a greater understanding of who you are, in hopes so. that we can worship you more accurately and more fully. Be with us now. I pray these things in your son's name. Amen. When you think of certain attributes of God, you inevitably find that there are certain gods in other religions that have similarities to the God of the Bible. For example, if you know Greek mythology, the Athena is known as the God of wisdom. And if you look in the Bible, you can see that God is also described as the God of wisdom in the Hindu religion, one of, their many, one of their many thousands of gods, uh, one of them is named Yama, which is the god of justice. And again, likewise, if you, look, if you look at the scripture and you study it, you know that our god is a god of justice. And it's easy from a secular perspective to see how certain attributes in other religion and other religious gods, compared to the god of the Bible, that these non-Christians can misunderstand and get confused and see how these qualities make them similar. That it, Because they, they have these similarities, that means that all religion are the same. But one of the most unique aspects in what makes the God of the Bible uniquely Christian is the doctrine of the Trinity. The Trinity is a unique doctrine to the Christian faith and is often misunderstood by different cults like Islam. They see that the, when we talk about the Trinity to a Muslim, they think that we believe a God that has like three heads uh, if you talk to a Jehovah Witness or a Mormon, they deny that, the, uh, that God is three in one, but rather they are uh, three character, characters that they put on uh, depending on the time and depending on Scripture. That's called modalism. Uh, we'll get back, we'll, we'll touch on that a little bit later on tonight. But where, whereas the inerrancy of Scripture we studied last week is under attack by non-religious people like atheists and agnostics. The doctrine of the Trinity is attacked by other religious groups. The doctrine of the Trinity is one of the core doctrines that religious groups attack. Historically and even presently, different cult groups would accuse Christians that the Trinity is illogical and is comprised of philosophy that is made by man. The Trinity is a complex doctrine. and It is definitely something that the human mind cannot fully comprehend. Now, I would argue that the complexity of the Trinity and our God makes us realize that our God is indeed the one true God. It is hard to worship a God that you know completely. If you look at all the false gods you, and, and look at the way that they act and the way that they behave, you'll notice that it's really someone that you can actually relate to. If you ever read any of the uh, pantheons of all these other gods, you can see that they're actually just men, uh, decorated and glorified men. But what makes a Christian God unique is that there are only certain aspects of God where we can understand, while other attributes we cannot fully grasp and others that we can grasp a little bit of. The, un- the unknowability of God is what makes God distinct from us, is that what makes him holy, makes him unique. There are many misconceptions of the Trinity. One of them is that, the, that in, the, in, the, in the triune God, that there are different rankings within the Trinity. Uh, when we use the language and when in describing the Trinity, often we say the three persons, the first, the Father, the second, the Son, and third, the Holy Spirit. And oftentimes when we say that, there, there seems to be like a ranking. We think God the Father is the first one, and the, the Son is just like the middle child, and the Holy Spirit is the youngest one, or something like that, in this type of rank. That's not true. All three are all three possess, all three are, are divine in essence, all three are equal, they're, they're co-equal, and they're all one. They're co-eternal, and they're all co-existing. Another misconception is that the doctrine of the Trinity was created by man. Uh, was, some people, if you've talked to Mormons or is, or Muslims, they'll say that it was by the Council of Nicaea or the Council of Constantinople. And it's true that these two councils were able to articulate the doctrine of the, the Trinity, even use the word Trinity. But this does not mean that the Trinity was invented by them. Rather, they set forth an official proclamation to counter the heresies that was going on at the time. The earliest expressions of the Trinity were by people from, example, the Clement of Rome, which was 88 to 99 AD, or Polycarp, 69 to 155 AD, or, or Ignatius, 50, uh, 50 AD or so. And all these old church fathers affirmed the deity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So all of these guys talked about the Trinity in the writing before the word Trinity was even used. The point of these councils were to tend to explain and articulate what they found in Scripture, and they wanted to go against the heresies that existed during that time. The doctrine of Trinity is not, another misconception is that the doctrine of Trinity is not an essential doctrine. This is the reason why we are discussing this topic tonight, because we know that the doctrine is an essential doctrine. If you reject the, the Trinity, you are not a Christian. There has been, even among many Christian circles, that believe that the Trinity is not worth discussing because of its complexity. Some would argue that since the Bible is not completely clear on every little detail, then it's not a primary doctrine. I would argue that it's important because the Bible is indeed clear about the Trinity, about the Godhead. The Trinity is a doctrine that should not be treated as a footnote to Christian theology, but it must be seen as the heart of Christian theology. The doctrine of the Trinity should not be treated as a footnote to Christian theology, but it must be seen as the heart of Christian theology. Every theology stems from understanding who our God is. The more we know about Him, the more every other doctrine is made clear. We must know the Trinity because the Trinity is who God is. The word Trinity is indeed never used in Scripture. And oftentimes, this is an argument of why the doctrine of Trinity does not exist. And I would argue that, that there are many biblical concepts that, uh, that, that we use that are not in the Bible. For example, the word rapture does not appear in the Bible, but the idea of it appears. The word rapture is derived from a Greek word, which means to be snatched up. Even the word Lucifer, the name Lucifer, doesn't actually show up in your Bible. Rather, it is a Latin translation of the phrase star of the morning. The word trinity, although it's not used in the Bible, is expressed through the descriptions of each member of the trinity. The word trinity simply just means three in one, and it's used to summarize that God is three distinct persons, yet they are all one. So how we get the idea of the trinity is completely drawn from Scripture. The Bible speaks of the trinity through its inference from things that the Scripture teaches without any direct verses that says God is three in one, and these inferences are a, comb- are a combination of all the passages of Scripture speak of the Father his Son, and the Holy Spirit as divine. And we learned from last week about the inerrancy of Scripture and how every book, chapter, and verse are inspired by God for us to know Him and know how to live in a way that's pleasing to Him. And one facet of God's Word is that it reveals to us the Trinity. The entire Bible speaks of each member of the Trinity uniquely, distinctly, and at times even similar- similarly. Similarly. So why is this doctrine important? It is significant because the doctrine is how the Bible describes God. It is significant because this is how the Bible describes our God. To fail to see who our God is and how he's revealed in Scripture means that we are worshiping a false God. We are Christians, and as Christians, we must not only get Jesus right, but we also must get the Father and the Holy Spirit right. We must get all three of the members of Trinity correct because of how we view the Godhead will impact the way that we worship him. How I want to accomplish this is by just looking through the scriptures. And like last week, there's going to be a lot of passages. You can write them down or you can flip to it if you could get through it quickly. But if you can't, just write down the verses and look at it at your own time. We as Christians do not worship a God uh, we don't worship a plurality of gods. Scripture is absolutely clear that we only worship one God. I have you turn to Deuteronomy 6 for a reason. Uh, this is crucial because it rules out the notion that Christians are polytheistic. Throughout the, uh, the patriarchs, the prophets, and poets all described God as one. The Old Testament is crystal clear about this. Deuteronomy 6.4, notice, here, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. This passage itself is actually a reference back to Exodus 20, verse 3, when God gives the Ten Commandments to Israel. And the first commandment he gave is that you should worship no other God but him. He is the only true God. And You'll notice in Deuteronomy 6.4, notice the word one here. This word occurs 960 times in the entire Old Testament, and it, and it appears in varying contexts. In its primary usage is described numerically, number one. That's just that's just primary usage is to describe one Yahweh reveals himself as one and there is no other there are no secondary gods there are no other gods on the same platform or any above Yahweh the God of the Bible is the only one true God there's only one God and no one else qualifies as God in this context of Deuteronomy other cultures and pagans have in their lands have multitudes of gods but the God of Israel is only one God we see example of this played out in 1 Kings 18.21. 1 Kings 18, you might be familiar with this passage. This is the time when uh, Elijah was, was talking with Israel. And then they were supposed to make this wager between the God of Israel and and Baal. And and Elijah asked them this one question. Elijah came near to the people and said, how long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people did not answer him a word. And so then there was this wager. They said, okay, okay if, you, if Baal is the true God, then we'll, we'll, we'll play a little game. And you're familiar, there's like these two, there was these two like piles of, of wood, and they said whoever can, uh, who, or these two piles of wood, and they said whoever can light that one on fire, that's the true God. And remember, the Baal worshippers were cutting themselves, and they couldn't, get, they couldn't get Baal to do anything. But Elijah just poured water on it, and all of a sudden, fire came down and burned everything up. This is to show that their God, the God of Israel, is the one true God. The Baal worshippers failed to do—they failed to summon Baal, even though Baal was known as part of one of, one of Baal's attributes, that he's the God of lightning. And when, God, when Yahweh demonstrated his power by setting the stack wood ablaze, To show to the Israelites, but everyone else that the one true God is the one from the God of Israel. Understand that when we speak of one God, we aren't saying that we worship one God and other religion and other gods exist. No, by one God, we are saying that He is the only God that everyone needs to look to and worship. There is only one God that exists, one God that is real, and one God that is the God of all things. Every other God is not real. And it's just a mere idol that are created by man to ultimately gratify their own lust or to be an object to boost their own self-righteousness. That's what all idols are, to fuel their own lust or to boost their own self-righteousness. This is why when we worship God that is so foreign and complex, it forces us to really be humble when we realize how great our God is and how finite we are. Isaiah 45 Verse 5 to 7, God says, I am the Lord, and there, is no, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I will gird you, uh, through, though you have not known me. The men, you, the, the men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one beside me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. The one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these. Who does all these? God speaks of His own abilities. God using Isaiah to let the Israelites know that there is no other God in all of existence. All that there is in existence exists because of God. Notice that in, the, in Isaiah verse uh, forty. Five verse seven it said that there was a forming of the light, that even the, the concept of darkness exists because God created light. He is the first cause. He does all things. And when you look at Isaiah 45 verse 21, last part of 21 to 22, it is, uh, it, is it not I, the Lord, and there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a savior? There is none except me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God. There is no other. God is saying that there is only one way to salvation is through this one God. There is no other God that can save except for him and him alone. Isaiah 46:9. Remember the former things long past, for I am God, and there is no other God. I am the God, and there is none like me. In this pluralistic society, it's easy to say that there are multiple ways to get to heaven or you can believe whatever you want as long as it's good for you. And we know that's not true. There's only one way, there's only one true God and there is only one way for salvation. Heaven is not a place where there's, you see uh, Yahweh and then Buddha and then Allah and they're all chilling and hanging out together and when you get there, they say, like, oh, welcome. That's not what heaven is. No, you are either standing before the only and the one living God as as one of his children, or you are standing before him as a sinner waiting for your judgment. There is only one God and the one way to be saved that is found in the God of Scripture. Jesus himself also affirms his reality. In Mark 12, 28-30, Jesus was asked which of the ten commandments was most significant, and he quotes Deuteronomy 6-4. In John seventeen three, Jesus in the high pri- priestly prayer hopes that other believers in the future will know salvation through the one and only God. When we look at James chapter two verse nineteen, if you know the for the lighters, you guys, we went through the book of James. In the book of James, you know that it's a book about if you truly are a Christian, there is it's more than just a profession; that there should be a uh, there should be there should your life should demonstrate it. In James two nineteen. James writes about how even demons know that there is one true God. James 2.19, you believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. And what's interesting is that even though demons who are marked by their ability to try to confuse and lie to people, they themselves acknowledge at the heart of their hearts, they acknowledge that God is only one. It must be crystal clear in our minds that we are not... We don't worship a a plurality of gods. Other religions may have certain gods or other aspects of life, in every aspect of life, but we as Christians do not worship a God that is like that. Our God is a sovereign God of all things. Our God is one, and there is none other. This is crucial for us in order to get a basic understanding of what the Trinity is. We believe that God is one, but he's made up of three three, three distinct persons. The Trinity on the surface seems like it does not show up in the Old Testament. But a clear understanding of how God describes himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit can get us a better grasp of the Trinity that is not just simply a New Testament doctrine or that is some doctrine that is made up by men in some council. Rather, in the Old Testament, it speaks of the plurality of of inside the Godhead. The first example, this is found in Genesis 1, verse 26. Genesis 1, verse 26. This is during the creation, Uh, when God created, before God makes Adam, God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, let them rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And you notice that this is "let us." This is the plural pronoun, and it's also in the verb. In Hebrew, it's the, the word "make." Let us make. It's also in the plural. And if you if you ever evangelize to like a Jewish person and you bring this this text up to them, one of their uh, one of the arguments would be that this is a this is a, this is a way that Jews you the, the Hebrew language used to talk about uh, like the sovereignty of a person or the 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 ruling. Uh, royalty of a person. The argument is that a royal person uh, will use a plural term to describe uh, them as overseeing a nation. And when the king speaks, he's speaking on behalf of the entire nation, right? It's like when a president goes, like, oh, we Americans are going to go to war, he's speaking on behalf of the entire nation, right? That's like the, the kind of idea that the people who study Hebrew would say, oh, see, that goes against the Trinity. But the problem with that argument is that there's no other passage in the Old Testament particularly when kings are speaking that use both the plural pronoun and verb. Like The, the, the only time where that, that you will see this royalty speaking is only when it comes to God. When God speaks, it's always in this plural form. The same grammatical structure is used in Genesis eleven seven 7 when we talk about the Tower of Babel. God said, that, Let's, let us go down and confuse their languages. Another evidence that the Old Testament speaks of the Godhead is through the words it used. In the Hebrew, the word Lord is Elohim. It's in the plural form. Whenever the word is used to describe the God of Israel, it's used in the plural form. When it talks about like false gods, it will also use Elohim, but its context determines whether or not this word is used to describe the true God or the false God. But when it speaks of Yahweh, it's always used, it's always used as Elohim in the plural form to describe that there is... There's more than just one inside Yahweh. Israel, we can see that they're, they, they, they have this understanding that there's more, uh, there's more to God than, than just one. That there's, there's a plurality within the Godhead. There are even Old Testament prophecy that speaks of the future king being divine. Isaiah 9, 6-7 to speaks of the prophecy of the birth of the Messiah and how this, this child that's going to come into the world will be someone that is divine, that they are going to worship him, that they're going to bow down to him. He will not be a regular human, but divine, and when he sits on the throne of David, he will reign forever. And Jeremiah 23 as well, 23 verse 5-6 to 6 connects the Messiahship with deity as well. All of these prophecies that speaks of God's, Future Messiah being a person but yet divine proves that there is that there is going to be a human and then there's going to be God Himself. Both of are divine and both are one and the same. The God that David worshipped and the Son that David anticipates are both one and the same. This prophetic passage of the of the Messiah in the Old Testament allows we to know, especially in the Old Testament, that there are going to be a per, that there is there's there's going to be more then there's the God, the Father, that there's a, there's a triune God that's at play here. In the, in the New Testament, it speaks of God revealing himself as three divine persons and how each member of the Trinity is divine. When we look at the Matthew 3, verse 16, this is the baptism of Jesus, right? With the baptism of Jesus, when he was baptized, the skies opened up and then the this, this Holy Spirit descended like a dove onto Christ and then there was a voice from heaven saying, this is my son, who I'm well pleased. And then earlier, when I talk about modalism, modalist people believe that God is like an actor. When he's like a, he's going to be Father for one, at one point, and then when it's time for be the, when it's time to be the Holy Spirit, he switch hats and becomes the Holy Spirit. When it's time to be Son, he'll be a Son. Well, this scene here in Matthew three goes against all of that because all three appear at the same time. You can see all three happening at the same time. The Trinity appears together, so there's no way in between that they can kind of switch quickly. In John chapter 1 verse 18 it's similar to Hebrews 1 where John writes down that how Jesus is not just a simple prophet or a mere man but he is indeed God. John 1.18 states that there's, no one has ever seen God until Jesus appeared. That when they looked at the face of Jesus they are looking at the face of God. Jesus explained to those who saw him what the Father is like. Jesus shows us who the Father is. John chapter 1, verse 18. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Another reason why the Bible describes and explains the Trinity to his reader is by the reality that all three share the same attributes. If you Survey through the entire Bible, you'll notice that all three are eternal. All three were there during creation. All three are righteous. All three are living. All three receive glory from humans. All three are omniscient. All three are powerful. All three give life. And all three are true. Which gets to the question what makes them different? If there's three, if there's three of them in one, what makes them different? If there's, if looking at all the similarities, what makes them different? Well, what makes them different is how they function throughout history. For example, the Son was sent by the Father to die on the cross. The Father wasn't sent to the cross. The Holy Spirit wasn't sent to the cross. But specifically, the Son alone was sent to the cross because of what God the Father wanted him to do. The Holy Spirit was sent by Jesus and the Father to dwell in the life of the believer. The, speak, the Bible speaks of how all three members of, of God uh, have different functions. They, they are all God, but then throughout time, they all function differently. But yet, they're all united in terms of their will and in terms of their uh, their will for man and for uh, humanity it's the same even though they're functioning differently jesus distinguished himself from the rest of two member of the of the in many ways and one of them is that jesus has a physical form we read in john chapter 1 verse 18 that no one has seen god except when they looked at jesus jesus explains who the father is The Holy Spirit is different from the other two in that the Holy Spirit is a means by the Father and the Son to fulfill His will. Both in the Old and New Testaments, it is the Holy Spirit that enables them to write down Scripture. Jesus sent the Holy Spirit to dwell in the life of the believer, enable them to be sanctified so that they can be more like Christ. Yet in the Old Testament, when we talk about the three aspects of Trinity, we say the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. How do we know that the Father is God. How do we know that the Son is God, and how do we know the Holy Spirit is God? In the Old Testament, it describes all three. In fact, it uses the terms Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The first one is, how do we know that the Father is God? Because it's described in Deuteronomy 32, verse 6. Deuteronomy 32, this is toward the end of Moses' life. He's singing the song of praise and worship to the Lord. In Deuteronomy 32, 6, Moses sings. I'm not going to sing. I'm just going to read this. Do you thus repay the Lord, O foolish and unwise people? Is not He your Father who has bought you? He has made you and established you. Moses here describes God as a Father who ransomed His son out, who, who redeemed His son, out, His children out of Israel. Moses is singing the song in hopes that people remember that at one point they were they were enslaved by the Egyptians and God was the one who purchased them and redeemed them out of it. In in 1 Chronicles, 29, 1 Chronicles 29, verse 10, David writes, So David blessed the Lord in the sight of all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, O Lord God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. David prays before the nation that Yahweh is their God. Hosea 11.1, 1, if you're familiar with that book, that's the book where um, there was a prophet that, was a, that has an, uh, basically a harlot wife, and that, that relationship between that prophet and that wife is well to parallel the way Israel is to, the nation, to, to God, that the, the nation of Israel was an, was an adulterer to the Lord. They, they were unfaithful to God. Hosea 11.1, 1, when Israel... Was a youth. I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. So God calls, God describes Israel as His own son. Now, what's interesting about this passage is because it makes this. It has like a double meaning to it. In one sense, God is telling Hosea through Hosea that Israel is His own child. In another sense, this is a prophecy of the future, of the future of Jesus having to leave the uh, leaving Egypt after Herod died. People did not just see Yahweh as father, but Yahweh saw Israel as his child. Now, the implication of these passages is that the nation of Israel is supposed to be viewed as, a chi- as children of God who are supposed to faithfully represent him in the world. However, we know throughout the entire Old Testament that the children, the children of God failed to be what God has expected them to be, and they chose to, to, to break that relationship with God. Yet in the New Testament we see Jesus having this rich and intimate relationship with the Father. And Jesus clearly thinks of him, thinks of the Father as God. Jesus is the perfect son of God where, as Israel in the Old Testament, failed to be what God wants. Jesus completes it and calls God his Father. This, the relationship between the two is supposed to highlight the perfect earthly relationship that Israel was supposed to have with God. But they failed to do so. This is why Jesus, throughout the at the time of his, when in the New Testament, he calls himself he calls his God the Father Father. It's to remind those people that are around that the perfect Son, what a perfect Son of God looks like. The Pharisees themselves called themselves the true Israelites, but Jesus rebuked them, saying that you know your Father is the devil. If a person is truly a follower of Jesus, then they are like Christ, and that they have the same relationship with the Father the way Jesus does. A natural, implica- a natural application for us is shown in Matthew 6. Matthew 6 is when Jesus talks about how you don't, if you are his child, you don't need to worry because the Lord will provide for you. The Lord provide for the, 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 the flowers and the birds. And if you, his being his child is valued way more, he is willing, he's, he's going to provide for you. He's going to care for you. Our heavenly father will care for us because we are his children. And Jesus wants us, wants them to be assured that their divine creator is watching over them and will always be caring for them. As Christians, we place our faith in Jesus. When we place our faith in Jesus, we identify with Jesus and having the same relationship that Jesus had with the Father. And not only that, but remember when the, in, in John 17, he was, he was praying for these future believers that one day that they will be with him in heaven the way that the, that the Son and the Father were together in heaven it's this, it's this anticipation, this hope that if we place our faith in him, we'll have this restored relationship with, with the Lord. Christ gave us his righteousness so that we could stand perfectly before him while our sin is given to Christ. And Jesus absorbs the entire wrath of God. And when we read throughout the New Testament in Paul's writings, we see that he sprinkles from time to time. In, other, in another passage, elaborates the reality that God is the Father. Paul's letters also begin saying that God is the Father is God. In Romans 1:7, he prays for the blessings of God the Father upon the readers. Galatians 1:1, Paul says that he is an apostle sent by God the Father. And in verse 3, he wishes his reader grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So 1 Timothy 2, verse 5 to 6, Paul states that the only mediator between man and God is God the Father. And it's found in Christ alone. First Peter 1, 2. Peter begins his letter as he reminds that although they are scattered throughout Asia Minor, that they are, cho- they are the chosen ones from God the Father. This is how we know in Scripture that why we use the language of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Because the Bible uses these same terms. The Old Testament talks about how God is the father and how Israel is rebellious son. And then in the New Testament, uh, the way the relationship of God, the father, and, and Christ is the, this perfect relation between father and son. So how do we know that the son is God? We'll get more into this and, and even the next point about the Holy Spirit next, in the next coming weeks, in the coming two weeks, Roger's going to speak on the work of the son and the work of the spirit. But I do want to highlight a little bit of how, how do we know that God, that Jesus is God? I'm going to really focus upon the Old Testament here. I mean, we already know the New Testament, you read the book of John, how that whole book shows the divinity. But in the Old Testament, how do we know that Christ existed in the Old Testament? Jesus claims to be the I Am, which is the same description of how God described himself. And we'll get more to that again next week. But I do want to look at the Old Testament. Nerdy theologians call this idea of like Jesus appearing in the Old Testament as theophany which basically means that the appearance of God in the Old Testament. Where was Jesus in the Old Testament? Well, it's, if you read, if you, if you notice in, in the Old Testament, you'll notice that there is this phrase called the angel of the Lord. And oftentimes when the angel of the Lord appears in the Old Testament, he's shown to be divine and equal with God. Yet also he's distinct from God. The first instance of this angel of the Lord appears in Genesis 16, verse 10. Genesis sixteen, Genesis sixteen, verse ten. This, this, or Genesis sixteen, the whole chapter is about how Sarah and Hagar, were either you know, wives. Their, well, Sarah was Abraham's wife, and Hagar was his one of the little mistress that he had, uh, servant girl. And uh, Sarah mistreated Hagar, but yet the angel of the Lord appeared to Hagar in, in Genesis sixteen ten. And it makes him a promise. The angel of the Lord makes a promise to Hagar. Uh, Genesis 16:10 moreover, the angel of the Lord said to her, "I will greatly multiply your descendants so that they will be too many to count. The angel of the Lord promises Hagar and he's going to fulfill it in Genesis 22 verse 15 to 18. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham the second time from heaven and said, "By myself I have sworn declares the Lord, because you have done this thing. And have not withheld your son, your only son. Indeed, I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heaven, as the sand on which is on the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gate of uh, possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed, all nations of the earth shall be blessed. Genesis twenty-two is the is the famous story of Abraham sacrificing his own son Isaac. And what? Stops him is the angel of the Lord. He speaks in terms of he speaks as if he's Yahweh because he is God. That they are one. In instance in the Old Testament identifies that the angel of the Lord is the, is and Yahweh are the same. Is in Judges chapter six. In Judges chapter six, this is um this is the scene where where Midian uh, was scared and he needed some assurance that that God that God wants him to be. A deliverance of a a judge of Israel, in Judges chapter six, verse twenty-two, when Gideon saw that he was the angel Lord, he said, "Alas, O Lord God! For now I have seen the angel Lord face to face." The Lord said to him, "Peace to you. Do not fear. You shall not die." Gideon realizes who he was speaking to the person who was giving him strength to be able to lead Israel, was indeed God. And he was afraid. He knew if he saw the face of God that he would die. But the angel of the Lord assured him that he will not die. Judges 13, if you flip over, this is the birth of Samson. And this is a seemingly hilarious scene because both of Samson's parents, they were still they were dialoguing with, this, with the angel of the Lord. And at the very end, they, they offered the sacrifice, and, the, and, it, and it lit up, and the angel of the Lord flew up. And then in verse uh, chapter 13, verse 21, Now the angel of the Lord did not appear to Manoah or his wife again. Then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. So Manoah said to his wife, We will surely die for we have seen God. Which is funny because right before that, the angel of the Lord promised him that you're, you're going to have a descendant and you're going to raise him as a Nazarite. So this husband here clearly forget, like, did not remember the promise that God has made to him. But this is verse 20. But his wife said to him, if the Lord had desired to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering from our hands, nor would he have shown us all these things, nor would he have let us hear things like this at this time. That is like a cool rebuke from a wife to a husband. But it's to show you that like the, the person that they just saw, it's not, just a, it's not like an angel like Gabriel or Michael, but it, or the, the angel that they saw was God himself. That, that the, In the Old Testament, we see that the angel of the Lord is a pre-incarnate Christ. That before Christ came, into the, through, came in through virgin birth, that he existed in the Old Testament. In Zechariah, we see that the angel of the Lord uh, is able to forgive sin as well. Zechariah 3, verse 3 to 4. Zechariah 3. Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and standing before the angel... And he spoke and said to those who were standing before him saying, remove the filthy garments from him. Again, he said to him, see, I have taken your iniquities away from you and you will clothe and will clothe you with festal robes. Then I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So he put a clean turban on his head and clothed with him the garments while the angel of the Lord was standing by. They were the angel of the Lord was able to forgive sin. This should come to mind when we think of the New Testament, when the Pharisees were saying only God can forgive sins. This means that the Angel of the Lord in this—they should have known this passage, but yet this means that the Angel of the Lord is God as well as because He too can forgive sin. And we know the pre-incarnate Christ in the Old Testament is described as the Angel of the Lord. The last example is in Genesis 31, verse 11 to 13 where the angel of the Lord himself claims to be Yahweh. Genesis 31, verse 11 to 13. Genesis 31, verse 11. Then the angel of the Lord said to me in the dream, Jacob, and I said, here I am. He said, lift up now your eyes and see that all the male goats which... Our are mating are, stri- are striped, speckled, and uh, molted. For I have seen all that the Laban has been doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar, where you have made a vow to me. Now arise, leave this land, and return to the land of your birth. The angel of the Lord identifies himself as the God, that, as the God of Israel. It seems that every, almost every example in the Old Testament, we see the angel of the Lord Is the pre-incarnate Christ who walked among men and did the work of God in different instances throughout the Old Testament. This proves that what we already know about Jesus, that he he, he existed before the foundation of the world. He existed in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. The Messiah, Jesus, that we worship is not a mere created being or some great philosopher or teacher, but he is indeed divine. He has existed before his first coming. Despite the world's attempt in trying to limit Jesus as just a teacher like any other that has existed, the Bible is clear that Jesus is more than just a man, but that he is completely God and fully man. Jesus was already doing the will of the Father before his first coming. He was there when the world was created. He upholds the world with the words of his mouth. and As we just saw, he entered into history in the time of the Old Testament to do the will of the Father. And those who saw the angels of the Lord treated the him as if they treated the Father. Now, how do we know, now that we looked at the, the Father as God, the Son as God, well, about the Holy Spirit. And again, much like the last point I mentioned that we'll discuss more in detail about the Holy Spirit, but for now, do you want to just look at some some scripture that shows us that the, that the Holy Spirit is indeed divine? In the Old Testament it expresses that, expressed that the, whole, the Holy Spirit is God. In fact, in Acts 28, 20, 20, 8, verse 25 to 27, Paul says that the Holy Spirit spoke through Isaiah the words of Isaiah. This means that the Holy Spirit was active in working through the Old Testament prophets as well as the New Testament in bringing forth the canon of Scripture. In the New Testament, the Holy Spirit also identifies himself as divine. His, the titles that are associated with him are, are similar to the others of the Trinity. He's known as the Spirit of God in Matthew three sixteen. He's known as the Spirit of the Lord in Luke 4, 18. He's known as the Spirit of your Father in Matthew 10, 20. He's known as my Spirit uh, in in Acts 2, 17, 18. He's known as the Spirit of Christ in, in Romans 8, 9. He's known as the Lord, the Spirit in 2 Corinthians 3, 17 to 18. The Bible speaks of how the Holy Spirit is viewed within the New Testament. In Matthew 12, verse 30 to 32, the Pharisees were asking that Christ was doing all of these miracles, and the Pharisees accused him that the reason why he's able to do these things is because he is working with the devil. And Jesus responds by saying that that's blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Jesus even said that if you blaspheme against the Son, that's forgivable, but blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. That's why we get the, the phrase the unforgivable sin is when you accuse the Holy Spirit of doing something that is not, that you attribute something to him that isn't true. The whole, and we know in Acts 5 as well, the Holy Spirit got offended. This was Ananias and Sapphira, when they were saying that, oh, we're going to give this money to the church, but they only gave a little bit of it, not all of it. And then they lied, and then the apostles asked, why did you lie against the Holy Spirit? Why did you sin against him? And then as a result of that, they died. The Holy Spirit is a person that can be offended and needs to be revered as God, just as much as the Son and the Father the Holy Spirit is not just some nebulous force sent by God, but it is God. The Holy Spirit is often described as the ancient, as, an, as an agent to, the, to God's will, but it's also God himself. Much like the Son is supposed to do the will of the Father, so is the Holy Spirit. They're all, they all have the same will, and they are all divine. It's important for us to have a higher view of the Holy Spirit especially in our contemporary time when when the charismatic church just seems to abuse the Holy Spirit. They view the Holy Spirit as something that they can command, that the Holy Spirit is something that they can summon and do miraculous things, as opposed to them being moved by the Spirit to do the will of God or to grow in Christ-likeness or to pursue holiness. The Holy Spirit needs to be revered. Scripture teaches us both that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all God. And again, there's a lot of passages that we went through. And if you have time, you can look through some of these passages. And even the ones I've mentioned is only a, a small amount compared to how many there are. When we think about the Holy Spirit, sometimes what helps us is illustrations. Right? When we think, I remember when I was growing up, the illustration that they gave was the, the, the Holy, the Trinity is like, it's like water, vapor, and ice. You know, it's like three different things. Now that now all illustrations have limitations, but when I was younger, I thought, "Oh, that makes perfect sense," and I'm sure some of you guys heard of this as well. But that's actually totally heretical—the idea of, the, of, of God being water, uh, soft, liquid, liquid, solid, gas, because that's the idea of modalism. You, know, you can change form depending on what, uh, what the situation is. Right? In order for that illustration to be true, all three have to be present at the same time. All three have to be distinct. We get all three have to be one. So if you ever hear someone say use the, the water illustration, just call him a heretic because that's totally wrong. But, the, but again, I, I've thought about these different illustrations. How can we help? What are, what are some of the worldly things that we come up with that can help us understand the Trinity? And there, again, every illustration has limits. Every illustration has its limitations. I can only think of, I've, here are some of my illustrations. And again, if you think hard enough, you could probably, you could probably deconstruct it and, make, and call me a heretic. But again, everything, every illustration has their limitations. But it's helpful to try to come up with something to help us get a greater, a small understanding of the Trinity. So here's two of them. I'm going to list one of them now. And it's from society. When we look at society, the United States government is made of three parts. The executive branch, the legislative grant, branch, in the judicial system, all three are unique, but they're all three Americans, right? They all function differently. They all do different things. Now, I already know how those are going to break apart because, like, oh, well, one is check and balance. The Holy Spirit and Trinity does not do that. They don't check each other. But the idea is that there are three distinct uh, functions, but yet they're still, they're all American as, you know, they're all Americans. The, uh, in all three of these systems, the president's not, the, logis- the legislative or judicial, the, and the other two are not the, the others. They're all distinct in function, but they're, yet they're all Americans. Another exa- illustration I, that I've read, I think, or I can't tell if I read it or if I come up with it, but either way, I'm going to use it. One of them is is the idea of fire. The uh, fire has three distinctive properties: it illuminates, it burns, and it gives warmth. Illumination is not burning, nor warmth. Burning is not illumination, nor warmth, and warmth is not illumination or burning. But they're all one in the sense that they're all a flame. Three distinctive properties, but they're all part of a flame. All, again, all illustrations have limitations in, try, in, in terms of trying to capture who the Trinity is. But it can help us in terms of give us a better understanding of the uniqueness of the Trinity. One of the reasons why in, in church history where people say that the Trinity is not true is because they can't think of something in nature that proves that can help us understand that. And, yeah, there are limitations. But, again, the limitation shows us how grand and how great our God is. Our God is three persons in one. The, whole, the God, the Son is not the Father and is not the Holy Spirit. Then the Father is not, the, the Son is not the Holy Spirit or, or, the, or the Father. And the Holy Spirit is not the, the Father or the Son. They're all distinct, but yet they're all one. This is why we worship a triune God, we worship a triune God because it's revealed in Scripture. The Bible teaches who our God is, and we must study him and know him well. Every member of Trinity is present in the Scriptures, and this is, this is all that he is. We cannot be a people that claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ, or follower of the Bible, or students of the Bible, and miss this about him. Our God is unique. He is a unique God, that he's three in one. We don't worship a plurality of God's. But the God describes a seemingly paradoxical truth with three distinctions, the three distinctions, uh, the three persons, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, that make up the Godhead. Again, this is an important doctrine for us because the Bible is indeed clear about all three. And as Christians, we must be bold and willing to defend those who, are, who, hold, who hold to a different view or who denies this view. This is not a, a secondary doctrine. This is a primary doctrine because the Bible was crystal clear about who our God is. May we be bold in our study of God's word so that we can know who he is, worship him, and praise him, and live in a way that is pleasing to him. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful in who you are and that we are limited in terms of how we view you. You are such a great and magnificent God, and we long for the day where we're able to, to fully grasp who you are. We anticipate the day in glory where we're able to, to, to commune with you face to face and to and to praise you for how you've predestined us before the foundations of the world. And how your Son came and died on the cross for our sin. And how the Holy Spirit sealed us so that we can be. We can be assured, knowing that when we die, we can be with you for all eternity. And Lord, I ask that we continue to live in light of, of truth, and that this truth, although seemingly vast and complex, allow us to be diligent students of your word in hopes that we can love you more, and that we, you can be more beautiful in our eyes, that we can, because of who you are, because how great you are, that we it causes us to, uh, to be bold in our evangelism, it causes us to... Fight harder against sin. Allow us to be more patient with those around us. Allow us to uh, be more like your son because of, how, of what we learn in your word. Be with us this week or this weekend. Uh, pray, Lord, that we can honor you in all things. Pray these things in your son's name. Amen.